0: Hello, welcome to Moments of Clarity. My name is Matthew Sortino, and with me is Toby Kent. Toby, you got a new intro for us today? Did you receive feedback on your.
1: I did get some feedback. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So uh,
1: I've been encouraged to spice it up a bit. (laughs) So
0: we're going with Matt. Hi. Everyone. Hello.
1: All right. No, no, that would be bad. So
0: up for me, down for our listeners. We don't like them. The other way around. (laughs) <laughs> hey, Matt, Hi, everyone. Uh Let's stick with hey, Matt. Hi, I don't mind it. I think it's nice. People want familiarity mm-hmm. when they Are you sure? listen to a podcast. I'm certain. Well, when they listen to a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Not, yeah. They want us as, you know, Toby changed it that week. I was waiting. And two weeks I had to wait for the podcast and he changes things on me. Speaking of changes, mm-hmm. later on we're going to be speaking to a wonderful guest that um, has the word catalyst mm-hmm. in the name of their their business. And catalyst they sometimes, yeah, yeah, leads to change, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So um, maybe off the top, Toby, before we get into our conversation, who are we going to be speaking to? A little teaser before we get into uh, her bio a bit later on.
1: Yeah, so I'm really pleased we're having this conversation and that we had that conversation. Uh, so we're talking to Jason Gibson who is the creator – of the Catalyst Network and Catalyst Network is in a really interesting and novel way. Josie pulls people together, people who thinks, who she thinks will drive change and are driving change in unusual but valuable ways. So it's not unusual for the sake of being different. It is for the sake of positive change but tends to be by people who are doing things unusually. We have a I think it's a really interesting and rich conversation. Part of that is because she talks to so many interesting people herself. But we kind of came to the conversation with Josie in part because you and I, through conversations, both in terms of moments of clarity in and of itself and the change and that it seeks to encourage and understand. and, And then through the people that we've interviewed in doing that and, you have interviewed in particular and just the idea of connections and networks and as I say as we were sort of exploring that it really led me back to Josie who's uh, I think such a, a driver of uh, this really
0: intriguing network. Yeah and as you talk about the interesting things that she did speak about one of those things was really pertinent about natural disasters and volunteerism and, and the way Um, in which people do come together, if not always, when necessary. And there's been floods all along the east coast of Australia for a while now um, and it seems to be uh, considerably more frequent and more extreme, which is, you know, what climate change will do, but we're now seeing them in Victoria as well. And I've noticed in the conversation I do ask a question about our selfishness. and Your selfishness. Well, yeah, my selfishness, our selfishness, uh societies. And I think both of you countered that with… That's
1: why it's your selfishness. Yeah,
0: that's right. That's yeah. right. <laughs> both of you countered that with when people do need to step up, we do. We, we do help each other and we're seeing that right now. I think it's called the Great Wall of Achuka and the Great Wall of Moama. Maybe they're fighting over who's got the best wall but hopefully they're coming together and not competing. Um, I'm sure they're not. It's It's brilliant. What we're seeing around both what was happening in Lismore and other areas through New South Wales and Queensland and now what we're seeing in Victoria has been just incredible and I couldn't imagine what people are going through at the moment. I mean this we've seen in recent times even in Pakistan and, and other parts of the world that don't have potentially the capabilities to – and you know more of this, Toby, but the capabilities that I think we do in Australia to recover and and plan but – I think it's not the capabilities, the risk of pedantry, but the resources. The resources. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's
1: what yeah, I... Yeah. sort of financial, I mean, economic well, resources. Yeah. If
0: anything, the the people of Pakistan are as um, resourceful with what they, you know, can get their hands on and can do as, as anyone, I, I'm I'm certain. So, Toby, you've got a bit of a background in this area. What What's your opinion on, you know, the, the state of Australia and its resilience in a way and then also our level of volunteerism uh, how are we going in terms of preparing and and working together to ensure positive outcomes in the face of impending disasters
1: it's a really interesting question when i began my uh, and throughout my role as chief resilience officer in melbourne one of my stock phrases and i'm sure people who work with me found that i had way too many to the point of tedium but one of the things I used to talk about was our greatest challenge in many ways was complacency, the uh, she'll be right, mate attitude and, and so on. I feel that we're in a different stage or point in some ways where we've on the cusp of having jumped from the point of complacency and underpreparedness. To a point of exhaustion, and as we reflect a few years back, and we were talking about the need to empower communities, and while that is still fundamental, I'm beginning to detect a straining within communities where we're kind of, as a collective, we've been on active watch now for several years, and that's just, in a sense, the everyday population who we're talking about needing to be more resilient. And and so there are probably a whole range of ways in which we're insufficiently prepared in terms of levels of insurance and has everyone got their ready box of if they've got to evacuate, what do you grab? And mm. So we're probably underprepared in that way. But I think in other ways... People are getting really tired. That's going beyond uh, emergency services, both the paid but also volunteers. Mm. Uh, And they have become really stretched because you mentioned the east coast of Australia. So if we go and just focus on that little snippet of the world, we've gone from drought to fire to landslides and floods and to COVID into flooding. And every time we say the community's rallied, I, I think we're getting to a point where we need to find a way to to stop having to rally.
0: And whose responsibility is that? So you mentioned earlier that the community, we're getting to exhaustion, but as not only the community itself and, and rallying as a community, you know, the community spirit as volunteers, our nurses are inundated, our paramedics are inundated. I think that we'll see that, our police force and, and our, even our teachers and um, it just seems like everyone in this sort of care, economy, emergency services, you know, healthcare, whatever it might be, we're teetering on some sort of edge of um, breakdown or breakthrough maybe mm-hmm. to be hopeful. Um, what do we – what's your opinion on on our next steps if – if we are at the point of exhaustion, climate change isn't going anywhere and, and there's no such thing as a natural disaster. So these, these events yeah. Yeah. are going to continue. What's our next step, do you think, opinion rather than, you know, this is – you're going to take this one to the grave?
1: Yeah. When you asked the question that I kind of answered and ended up stalking, talking about exhaustion of communities and so forth, I, I didn't mean to be as downbeat as that maybe sounded – as a country, Australia still has all kinds of resources and tremendous privilege and possibility. So despite what I was saying, we still have incredible resources and tremendous good fortune. Not every community is exhausted. Many have resources. So uh, I, I maybe began to paint might have sounded like a little bit of a dystopian or too dystopian a, a, a picture. I think we have a great opportunity. So much of the world does not hang on government, but at the same time, so much of government has an influence on the world. And I think with changes in some of the emergency management arrangements, with the beginning of some really thoughtful conversations, and and I emphasize thoughtful, not knee-jerk, around where can we live Looking forward a, a few generations, then then I think there are you know, real drivers of hope. And and, and and to try to give a little bit more substance perhaps to what I've said, maybe part of what I'm failing have to and until this moment failed to articulate. I think there's a massive difference between supporting local communities and bringing decision-making down to a much more local level rather than just saying communities need to activate and we need to build each community every time there's a flood needs to be building a sandbag levy, uh, which puts tremendous... Uh, impost on the community as well as any uh, all the associated broader economic issues or uh, implications of that unless you're a sandbag wall builder or dare I say a big hardware supplier anyone who's out building sandbag walls is not doing what they would normally be doing to generate income and and advance their yeah. livelihoods and, and on
0: that. Those people that are sandbagging not only are not doing their norm the job that they sh- maybe should be doing, not that they should be doing, the, the job that they might want to be doing, the reason really that they're doing it is to defend their home or their business. They have to do it or else no one will. And yeah. um, maybe that's what our defence forces which are being deployed in some ways need to be, I don't know, is that who we have to go towards, this these amazingly resourceful, well-trained, disciplined people with maybe time on their hands as a, as a collective, are they the people that need to respond to disasters to give our emergency services on the front line a chop out? I mean, unless there's a war around the corner and there could be and <laughs> we're all no, in deep, exactly. deep, deep <laughs> horror, um, you know, maybe... With climate change happening, we need to redesign the way we think about things. So, there's two things. Like, what do we do with knowing that this is going to be an annual or close to event, whether it's drought, flood, fire, landslide, something else, a pandemic, potentially king tides and things that go well beyond anything we're used to. Do we have to really accept that as a community and just say, this is going to happen, we better be... Prepared not just with the people about to lose their home jumping in to, you know, at a time of potential trauma, having to then be the defence against the community? Or do we have people ready to go? And the second part of it, do we need to redefine normal? Since the 2019 20 fires, everyone's waiting for normal. The smoke fills Melbourne or Sydney or wherever. ...normal will happen soon. COVID hits. As you, the exhaustion maybe comes down to that. Then COVID hits. Lockdown one, two, three, four, five, six, you know, normal. Okay, normal. We don't have lockdown laws but 100 people a day were dying. And then, you know, now there's floods and <laughs> that exhaustion is there. And, and, and I think people are starting to realise that our life isn't normal... Well, what we thought was normal is no longer appropriate and do we need to redefine normal?
1: There's a lot of talk after any disaster, Uh, I think it's partly a linguistic thing, a modern sort of linguistic thing, certainly coming out of COVID, about the new normal. I think on the one hand we clearly have to be alert to a different, world normal and the risk of getting too philosophical has only ever been contextual so if you're in afghanistan and you've gone from tribal warfare to russian invasion soviet invasion to the rise of the taliban to us and various allies you know, it's been a pretty heady few decades let alone the preceding history does australia and do countries that have previously perceived themselves as being somewhat immune to these disasters do we need to think differently and the answer sadly is absolutely i think if we do it right and the sooner we do it the better mindful that we cannot know exactly what the future will look like. I I, I think we are armed with so much information, so many of the resources to actually not be always reactive, to start building the places and the lives that our children and grandchildren and indeed our, our older selves can thrive in. Um, so yeah, we probably need to think about how we use resources fundamentally differently, resources in terms of be that military uh, and thinking about preparedness. But we definitely don't have to always be on the back foot. We definitely don't have to always be responding and hoping that the best of humanity will come out in the worst of circumstance. The circumstance is now perhaps generally challenging. So let's focus on shifting to creating the the playing field, the environment uh, on which we can all collectively thrive that much better.
0: Brilliant, Toby. My last take, just to clarify my thought on it, I don't expect us to think of a new normal as let's go back to Netflix on the couch and, you know, buying plastic things and throwing them out and getting a new one and, you know, I think we need to fundamentally understand that climate change is – Real, collectively talk about it and understand it, that our political systems around the world are being challenged and that there's no guarantee democracy and freedom and identity and expression are going to necessarily last. We need to keep that at the forefront of our minds and fight for it. We want to be collectively good to each other and have kindness and care at the centre of everything we do. And maybe we just need to let go of some of the peripheral things that made us think of a good life once upon a time, the holiday four times a year overseas via plane, spending whatever amount of money on on X, Y and Z to feel some happiness. Maybe that's got to change. That's an individual level and our government needs to talk to us with real talk, transparency and maybe not, Just thinking what will the listener, what will the voter think but what do we know is right and how do we lead on this rather than just being like how do we win the next election? We need a lead and we need long-term vision and um, I think that's as an individual level and a government level. So I I would
1: vote for you but the challenge in that is – I don't know if enough people will vote for you to get you in and therein lies that challenge around leadership versus telling people what they want or need to hear. What I do know is I don't have the answer, but listening to Josie talk about her life, her work, would be much more uplifting for people than hearing me being confused anymore.
0: And me being pessimistic i thought that was optimistic that made me naively so naively optimistic which makes me feel like a pessimist because i know it's wrong (laughs) josie was incredible we we spoke to her recently and she was just exceptional with what she had to say and she's an exceptional woman with an experience that that isn't what you're expecting necessarily she's done a lot of things in her life and, and you're going to listen to that now so she'll talk a lot about herself well no She'll we encourage her to talk a lot about we've, her. we've asked her to talk about herself. And um, as such she'll uh, say whatever we're about to say better than we do. But can you touch a little bit more about um, Josie, the person that you know?
1: I, I mentioned it a little bit earlier. I, I got to know Josie because she was running the Catalyst Network of um, trying to find inspiring people who would connect and... Without necessarily a defined outcome, which is also so unusual in society now, everything's about well, you know, what's the outcome? You know, should we invest in this to get that outcome? And Josie unapologetically says, "I don't know what all of this might lead to, but I know that you are all people who do things and think in ways that can lead us in valuable directions, and beyond that." I'm probably not going to do much to really do Josie justice, so we should hand over to her. Josie Gibson,
0: everyone. Josie, welcome to Moments of Clarity.
2: Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Toby, for having me.
0: Josie, I'd love to hear a little bit about yourself, you know, for those listeners that don't know much about you. What can you share that will enlighten the listener about some of your um, professional endeavours before we get into the the personal side of you?
2: Mm, Good question. I've had a fairly eclectic career, fairly non-linear, but um, started my work life as a cadet journalist on a country paper. And that was sort of accidental because I had actually planned to study and I'd gone to Japan as an exchange student and various circumstances Mm. contrived to offer me um, a way out of studying arts law at a uh, sandstone university. So I came back and at the bottom of the pile, the hierarchy in a country newspaper and cut my teeth there, and out of that experience ended up being sent to Texas to work for two years on newspapers um, as part of the South Australian Texas Sesquicentenary. So I worked on a libertarian-owned newspaper
0: oh, wow, that was
2: headquartered in Orange County, so they didn't believe in uh, anything tax-supported, which made reporting on things quite interesting, um, colourful, as if, as if it wasn't enough to be in Texas anyway. So I worked on two newspapers in that chain. That was during the Iran-Contra years, and were right on the border with Mexico. So it was pretty, pretty hot, interesting time to be there. The Challenger shuttle exploded on my first week, I think, week or two weeks in the US. So that was quite a, a life changing experience for me. And, and to experience American journalism at that time with what was going on was quite formative to my journalism career, compared to the sort of passivity that tended to be the hallmark of a lot of Australian journalism. So I came back ready and raring to go to Melbourne, but hit hit, um, a recession. So I was in newspapers at the time. Nobody would have me except the ABC. So that's how I ended up in radio. I just literally went door knocking and the only door that opened was the ABC. They took me in. I worked with some absolutely amazing people, some very colourful characters, but I was a student. I'd already had about eight or nine years Print experience but I tried to learn this different way of news gathering and, and sharing the news and I absolutely loved it as a medium and I still do so i worked for the ABC in two stints um, like everybody at the ABC I knew I quit in high dudgeon went off overseas lived in London changed my mind came back to study and of course went back to work at the ABC because <laughs> that's what you do But it was great. So at one point I was studying full-time and producing current affairs full-time. But by the end of that, and that was, I was very interested in global affairs, so I went to work deliberately at Radio Australia, which is the international broadcaster, the equivalent of um, BBC World Service, and at that time it was a target, a political target. So there are many, many efforts to close it down, to sell off the shortwave transmitters. So I was one of the leaders of a staff campaign to try and save Radio Australia. So for two years we we did that as well as our day job. And by the end of that, I mean, we managed to, to save it from disappearing completely, but that was, that was it for me. After nearly two decades of journalism, I just said, that's it. Where do I go after that? So I remember sitting there looking across the river because by that point we were in the new ABC quarters at South Bank thinking, what, what do you do if you don't work in journalism? I'd never kind of applied for a job what do you do and I came to know that that was quite a thing with a lot of journalists because I, I saw an ad and I applied for it in government it was the Kennett government and I thought well this will prove my credentials I'll just cross the river and work for the Department of Justice I didn't know how much I was being paid or anything and, and I met my new boss he loved, loved me and so I went back and resigned, still not knowing how much I was going to be paid or anything. I packed up my things and off I went to work in government and I lasted nearly a year, which I thought was pretty good going. So I was really fortunate to work with a visionary in government, even though government wasn't a place for me. And so this is sort of a perpetual thing in my work life. I didn't quite fit and I couldn't do the kind of work that I thought that I could do. And he, he could see that I ended up working for him a couple of other times in different roles. He would just call me up and I'd go and and do stuff. But after that I worked in a university, I worked in a business school, and and I I was looking for something and I didn't know what it was. And then I I had quit yet another job and I was up in Queensland and saw a job to run um, a chief financial officers group. And I thought, huh, I haven't done that before, I might do that. And it was at that point associated with the Economist Intelligence Unit and I was a big fan of the Economist. So I ended up working with this private company, two partners that had a very successful business working with executives of global subsidiaries in Australia. So it was a whole new world to me. So I came in not knowing anything about that world and, and set up and grew the CFO practice to about 150 companies. And I had a been exposed to business a bit but actually working in a family-owned company and they gave me enormous opportunities to hang myself sometimes but also to really push the boundaries of this very difficult and poorly understood group of executives and I to this day have a lot of people in my networks who are original members of that group so that's nearly 20 years ago so that was when Governance was becoming a real issue after various meltdowns, so Sarbanes-Oxley was a big thing and, you know, so I'd have great conversations. But the things that stuck with me and that probably kind of launched me into where I am now was the value of bringing people together for conversations they can't have anywhere else. And we did that regularly. And the level of honesty that I found and and you could create trust very quickly in in those situations. And I have lots of good memories of the absolute care that these very stressed individuals showed to each other during some of these conversations. One one guy turned up to a lunch one day and said he'd just found one of his colleagues dead on the floor in his hotel room. And he thought, you know, he'd had a heart attack or something, but he should cancel lunch. And he said, no, no, I need to, I need to come to lunch. And I had my little script of what we were going to talk about but we talked about that about grief loss themselves it was just one of the most powerful conversations so I did that for about seven years and helped them launch a few other businesses but I was still looking for that well what's the main game Um, so I quit without a job again convinced my husband to quit without a job thinking well this is it we're going to really test our convictions now. And I thought it was innovation that I was interested in, but really I was much more interested in different ways of working and the kind of mindset shift that it seemed that we we were stuck in and we needed to shift in order to enable organisations and people to just do the work that they're really capable of doing, which I've seen over my career. So um, out of that I launched um, a few collaborations, business ventures and started my own business in 2010 and I've been doing variations of that ever since. Um, But the core of it has always been about bringing people together to have different kinds of conversations and out of that help people collaborate and do things differently. So that was a long answer to a simple question.
1: Oh, but it's provided us with a platform for so much more, Josie. So I'm intrigued by a very narrow bit uh, and we'll, we'll go beyond well beyond this I know but what was the and I've met your wonderful husband Eric who's a an incredible photographer um what why was it necessary to convince him to quit his job as well that sounds like a bigger yeah. more profound life change than just I want to change my career
2: um, well we we have a sort of creative collaboration ourselves and Eric is a photographer as you know but he was he'd been a a commercial photographer for years and then had decided to get to close down the commercial business to pursue his um, creative vision around photography but this was when digital was starting to put a lot of his colleagues out of business and so he was going through this really rough transition he was working as a postie trying to do his art watching hearing the war stories and the horror stories from his photographer mates and he was really really caught and I said why don't you quit your job and go to university like go go and study photography maybe you could teach it because nobody in his family at that stage had gone completed university a bit like my family and he sort of thought about it and then he said sure And, of course, he ended up getting accepted into both the fine arts and the sort of commercial side. And it was quite amazing to see he thought that he would be going in there, he'd know it all, he'd learn how to teach and that would be his lot. But what he found was being around in an environment of learning and and youth and um, working with really good people who could help him see the value of his vision and not get bogged down by the tools gave him a new lease on life and so he's just been producing amazing work ever since and projects out of that and you know ended up getting a vice chancellor's award and all that kind of stuff so but but all it was at that point was really if i'm going to be so self-indulgent to quit my job why don't you quit your job and we'll just figure this out together
1: yeah so as i say, it was quite a a narrow bit down to take us down but again it's it's uh it talks a lot to the person that I have met in terms of you and your the way that you encourage people to be bold and the way that sometimes I think you can, in the most constructively challenging of ways, encourage people to perhaps see things in themselves they don't always see. Which Thank leads you. me also to a question because, or perhaps another reflection, um, we might end up with a question, which is... It's come up a few times in a number of conversations, again, where we have with people who in one way or another are doing inspiring things. But one of the phrases that you used was, and i talking about your government role, I once again found I didn't really fit. And yet at the same time, of, again, of people, I'm fortunate enough to know lots of different people, but you're one of the ones who is more engaging and, you know, I think people would assume you could just sort of fit in. Oh, Josie, she'll fit right in. So, what is it? Do you think about not fitting in, but also that makes people sometimes really good at bringing others together and and an overused phrase perhaps, but driving change. Is there anything to that?
2: There's definitely a group of people, and you know, it was as you know, it's why I was called upon to to create the Catalyst Network, whatever it was in its genesis, that having a a different frame of reference, uh, a longer and almost like an end-to-end three-dimensional view of situations and people. uh, For years I thought that everybody looked at the world that way and then I realised over time that actually Many people view the world very differently and in much more black and white, linear, two-dimensional ways. and And that's just how we're wired. And as I was sort of delving into the the research and the the insights around that way of viewing the world, that was when it really um, gelled for me the value of I didn't feel as much of an outlier once I understood that this was just a function of how how I was wired, but my, thinking and my uh, approach was outside in as opposed to inside out and then I started to know notice amongst my network of networks a lot of well not a lot of people but a group of individuals who operate that way and it's sort of outside in big thinking that can be brought in and applied and there's a there's a range of characteristics which I really started to delve into and, and using myself as a test case because it's all about me, right? It's, <laughs> it's always all about us. But that inner, inner exploration had to find external expression and the more that I could do that, the more comfortable I got. And so, for example, the boss that I talked about that I loved working with, he would just ring me and say, oh, I've got this project, this gig, you're interested. Just turn up and I'll make sure you get paid, and go do your thing. And he kind of gave me a lot of space to come in and go. And so it was very a very relational way of working, which is very different to a process-driven way of working. That To me, they're two very different things in organisations, across organisations, industries, outside the relational way of doing things, the more I got comfortable with that, once I started to uh, unpick that, the more I could just come in and just appear and be part of whatever was happening because I could sort of understand the the social infrastructure. It's almost, it's hard to describe, but I I have heard this speaking with other people. You feel it, you sense it before you see it. Is this organisation, does it have a strong sort of, social infrastructure or is it frayed is it is it under stress and essentially the kind of work that I was being asked to do was come in and help strengthen it find people who could do stuff that would help strengthen it and you know at an external external expression of that would be collaboration but there's so much more that goes on below the surface than just that word, which to me has been sort of so devalued as to be useless. But it it enabled me to actually just come in and embed myself and work with people where they're at because I could sort of see where they were at and sense where they were at. And there was no point. It wasn't about my agenda. It was about what, as a collective, needed to happen. You know, how far can we go?
0: And that leads us to the work that you're currently doing with the Catalyst Network network. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you're currently doing?
2: Sure. Um, Well, the Catalyst Network has been this ongoing experiment from um, about 2011, 12. I started to notice a lot of people leaving roles, senior roles, and I would call them high-value contributors. And I was a bit curious about and a bit sad, like, why are organisations letting these people go? And I'd go and chat with them and some people would cry and some one guy just sort of rocked in his chair, like the b- level of burnout was palpable. And I'd say, so why are you going? And to a person they'd say, I can't do it anymore, you know, I can't get them to see that we have to do things differently. And so they'd been trying to influence at a very high level some very, change in some very entrenched hostile systems and it was taking a personal toll. And so they were leaving. And so I started down that path of, um, okay, well, let's organise some conversations to try it. There's something going on that's a bit bigger than just one or two things. Let's have some conversations about this and see what comes out of it. So I had the first conversation in early 2013 and I vowed I would never, ever, ever run another membership, ever, community, because it's a tough, tough gig. But I got 20 people turning up. In Sydney for a two-hour conversation about leading in complexity and I thought "Mm, okay something's going on had to do the same thing in Melbourne because it's Melbourne Sydney right so but then out of that I saw this really interesting group and it's a bit like um, you know the thoroughbreds you just notice that there's a different way of thinking and being and I thought, well, maybe I can help support these people by having conversations, but there was no business model. By then I'd realised that what I was looking at was a quite a small group of people with a unique set of characteristics and all I had to do was look, have a quick conversation but look at their track record, usually very eclectic, cross, truly cross-disciplinary thinkers but actually very high levels of learning agility, able to work with a range of people, you know there's data out there but it hadn't quite been brought together in that way and so I struggled with how to make this a paying proposition and you know that's why it's an ongoing experiment so we have a little membership but the bigger the bigger payback for me was "Mm, if we can as a collective, support each other and start to develop a a different language around some of this stuff that we call change and transformation and working together in different ways, how might we actually accelerate and amplify some of these efforts? Because these were often people that were in significant roles but they weren't great self-promoters. They're not great self-promoters. It's more about, as someone described it to me, you know, we stand in front of the work, so we do the work and then we move on, and always leave it better for for where we've been. You know, it's it's just a, a hallmark of the people that I've had the honour to you know hang out with and hear their stories. But the other thing that was driving me around this was, you know, our our conversations at a, at a community, government, business level were increasingly becoming two dimensional, very narrow. Not a lot of cross-fertilisation in that sort of tradition of the renaissance of the, the random collisions of ideas and being able to sit with difference and probe but in a way that is not destructive. We kind of lost those skills and I thought, well, we need to have a forum or some, some place where we can do that. And so, you know, that's an ongoing experiment. I think it's bubbling along quite nicely um, the pandemic, of course, forced us to go online a bit, but that just broadened the conversations. But out of that came the idea to set up a commercial business because I get approached all the time about commercial collaborations where you come and do this and that or grow a network or build a community, kind of done that. But I thought I was reading about the McKinsey stuff with the opioids in, in the US and Toby knows this and I'd had a few drinks at the time, and I thought, nah, I have to do this business, like this commercial business, and bid for some of this work. Like we have to, we have to put an alternative out there that doesn't look like the incumbents and you know the, the market players. Just show them that there's a different way of approaching this that doesn't have to be mired in red tape and um, isn't toxic masculinity. It's it's creative and it's beautiful and and trust based because I'm a strong believer in trust-based activities. Uh, It hasn't always worked for me, but I still believe it's the way to go. And, And I think with some of the things that we did, we were able to show how quickly you can move when you get the right people who are willing to just say, yep, I'm in. And so out of we did five bids over a course of about 14 months, we got onto two panels. It's pretty good going when you consider that we didn't... We didn't fit any of the boxes sometimes but we got on their radar and to me that was the point because change is coming. But if you just leave it open, the vacuum is going to be filled by others so we have to be part of it. we got to play.
0: Absolutely. We've got to play. I love, I love that. And I, I think that that sort of encapsulates a lot of your decisions along the journey that you've you've decided just to quit without a job, try something new. And it's a, it's a courageous thing um, for you to do, and and now that you're working with people that I'm, I'm guessing, do you, do you find that you connect with these people on a personal level, like that, that that you see yourself in the people that you work with a little bit, or or are you just someone that can you, you coach them? You're not a tennis player yourself, but the tennis player needs a coach. Are you are you part of that, and you want to harness the embodiment of of what was once you, or what is you, or is it just that you feel like as a coach you just can give these people something that yeah, that can give them that, that lift and, and that, that courage to do what they need to do in the world?
2: Mm. I'm really, really ambivalent about the word coach and I play a lot of sport and and so for years I didn't use it. So in coaching practice, which I have, I've got my own sort of approach, it was mainly people who came to me through my networks who'd been tipped out. In terms of the people of the network, I'm, I've just helped co-create something I want to be part of. So I am just one of the players and, yes, you know, some of these things, someone's got to take ownership at different times but to me it's something that we're all creating together and part of um, walking alongside people is just to give them the encouragement to realise what they already know. I just think the pandemic really showed me, underlined something that I think, I've known for a long time that when you get out of the way and give people a bit of an encouragement to go forward, they show what they're made of. Like people are magnificent and I've got so many experiences at different places that I've worked where they've just done that. They've pulled off the absolutely impossible and that the payoff is to go yay with them, great, and then I move on to something else. But they're forever changed, like we're forever changed on some DNA level by that magical moment of, oh, this is what it feels to create together. We can do this. And, you know, I do play a lot of sports, so I, I think the dynamics are exactly the same.
1: Just picking up on that phrase about the DNA, maybe not going back quite as far as your DNA, but can you just give us a bit about, you know, your childhood and what perhaps were some of the things that when you look back you think, oh, yeah, now I know why I became a cadet journalist and I kind of, <laughs> you know, so, so the bit before the career and what led you to be Josie the adult.
2: Yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not somebody who looks back. I, I mean I'm reflective but I don't look back very often and it's funny... We've, we've got so much junk and Eric is a big hoarder so we've been going through boxes and I've lived in different parts of the world and looking at stuff that's been sitting there for 20 or 30 years that I haven't opened that I've just shipped over from Texas or it's still packed up from when I was in Europe or Japan and I put on the dining room table so I went I made myself go through stuff and it's amazing oh scary really what you keep trying to understand why I kept some of those things. And then I ended up with all these, I called them like life piles of different chapters on the table looking at it from when I was a kid. And in some ways it's, it's a bit crazy that I'm doing what I'm doing right now when I look at where I came from out of a big, you know, rollicking Irish Catholic working class family family Nobody ever went to, you know, university. That just wasn't what you did. And then I arrived and it was I, I was just so fortunate to have great teachers and I know my parents had no idea what to do with me, but I've got five sisters and at different times they, they would kind of look at me like, we, you're of this family but we're not quite sure who you are but we'll do it anyway. So I had a lot of that when I was growing up. I was treated differently and I don't know whether that influenced things or not but the expectations were that I would academically I was okay I love school but I also had to tick the other boxes of a big Irish Catholic clan you had to be house captain at school you had to win everything you had to win best and fairest in your team etc then you also had to be a party animal so you also had to run the social committee at school etc etc so a good all-rounding education um, when, I, when I look back at it. Um, but I was always drawn to what was happening in the world from even a really young age. And, you know, we we were schooled through the ABC partly. I learned French as a kid. You know, I remember sitting there with the radio lessons and, and I loved that allure of what whatever was out there. Uh, but we had no money. So we were, we were poor working class, like really poor. So I got a job as a checkout chick. I mean, just listening to the discussions the last few weeks about what age can kids work, we all had jobs when we were about 13. Um, some of the some of the students, we, we left um, Adelaide to move to Renmarker town on the Murray, which um, I was an outsider yet again coming into this school, didn't know anything about that part of the world um but you sort of find a way to coexist taught me a lot about resilience um, in country areas sports obviously an easy way in so tick that box academically etc but I was always an outlier you know always even through high school so I have I can honestly say I'm in contact with people through Facebook but I have no contacts with high school it was I found it very difficult because I, I did well and, you know, and I think that was sort of a small example of the, the pressure that people in Australia face where, around excellence and achievement and I, didn't, I wasn't equipped to respond to that. I didn't know how to straddle those worlds, you know, be part of the gang and excel as well. So I just picked my side and thought, no, nah, I'm going to ace it. I'm getting out of here. Like I'm I'm just going to, you know, work my way through, which is what I did. So I got an exchange um, scholarship. I wanted to go to Brazil um, but my family didn't have the money so I ended up going to Japan, which I knew nothing about, and arriving with my sister's fairy coat um, in northern Japan in the middle of winter and I'd never seen snow. I couldn't have been more unprepared for that.
1: And um, what were you actually doing in
2: Japan? Well, officially mm-hmm. I was repeating my final year of school because I'd just finished. Mm-hmm. Unofficially I was having a, a wild time in <laughs> Kirotri. Um, just absolutely loved it. And the interesting thing was, so we were on Hokkaido, there were four other Australians, a lot of Americans. I had no background in the language so I just came in and I, I, I learned to speak it on the ground, you know, the, the functional language, whereas a lot of people who had come with years of learning at high school level, they really struggled to communicate. So, it, you know, it's that if what you don't know doesn't hurt you. But midway through that year, um, I, got a, I got a call that kind of this ties into why journalism not law arts at Sydney Uni, um, that my dad was dying. And so... I had taken my first trip to Sydney to get on the plane to go to Japan. So I'd never been really outside the southern part of Australia. And I sat there thinking when I got the call, oh, okay, well, what do I do about that? I've got to go back. I've got to go back. But I'm not giving up this scholarship. So I was a wheeler dealer even then, just being able to find the money. And I had a great um, host family, so I jumped on a plane, came back, and this is one of those sort of turning points around human nature. I remember sitting in the airport in Tokyo, and I met this really guy because I had no idea what was going on. All I knew was I had to catch the interconnecting flights and just get there. And this guy next to me, he he said hello. What to use Japanese. Said my name's Ed. I'm an engineer. I'm I'm going to Queensland. And I said, oh, that's great. And he was. We were chatting about it, and I told him what had happened. And He's still a lifelong friend, so this is an amazing story. So I made it back in time to see my father before he died and then we were clearing out his stuff and my mum got a phone call in Renmark and she said, there's somebody on the phone for you. He said his name's Ed and he'd called, you know, tracked down and called to see how things had panned out and but that that sort of kindness and generosity and follow-through. We were just sitting next to each other in the airport, and I have to say, you've probably got similar stories. Like when you're that open and lost, there's always somebody. Is my experience because I've been lost, unemployed, miserable in different parts of the world, and there's always somebody that steps in.
1: And is that something that you think you've learned through experience, or do you think there's another part of you that because you are? an open person and, and willing to put yourself out there that equally it's maybe happens to you um, because you were like that?
2: Ooh, that's a that's a hard question to answer. I, I certainly know with my upbringing, you know, Catholic, um, Irish, you've got your insiders and your outsiders but I have noticed, you know, even in the business world, when I was in I was in business with different cultures over the years, and you sort of see that in group out group culture a lot. Mm-hmm. That I don't think it's just the restricted to Irish Catholics, but that level of suspicion I've never had. Like I've I've travelled around the world. I've done some really looking back, probably unwise things in unwise places, but somehow just skated through. So. Why have I been able to do that? And somebody else who might have driven down that deserted road, you know, with the drug traffickers flying overhead in, you know, the border, Mexico border, what I can break down and the guy that stops to help me is not some, you know, mass murderer. He actually is a telco technician who can fix my car. You know, what are the chances? Mm -hmm. So there's a, I mean, there's a really interesting innovation guy, Tim Castell at University of Queensland, and he talked about this mate of his his american who's a extreme mountain mountain biker and someone said to him don't you worry when you're going down tearing down these hills and he said if you see rocks you hit rocks and i, I that's stood in my mind at the back of my mind for a long time that you see it it happens but if you don't expect it usually good things happen
0: Josie, it's, it's, I, I love your journey. I love, your you know, the foundational um, part of that journey. What, what would you describe as, like, the main values that you hold, the main things that you, you know, want to keep as your, you talked about the big picture earlier, both in your sort of personal life and your business life, which it seems like you've tried to align, what are the, the things that you really hold dear and, and are the non-negotiables for you?
2: As I've aged, I've become less patient with, Two dimensional thinking and trite phrases. So I'm very committed to nurturing possibility and realising possibility. And I don't think the language of problem solving actually has served us very well because all it's done has um, entrenched us in problems. Singing and particularly, yeah, exactly. We, we've almost lost the language of possibility. And what I find when you're working, in really great collaborations with people, the language is different, the energy is different. So even thinking about values, I don't know that I can even put a word to it, but I know that that energy of possibilities is what people yearn for um, and we go much, much further together and that—that that is just something that I, I've always, it's how I roll. You know, if I got in trouble when I was an exchange student, I usually had a gaggle of people with me. It's so much more fun when you're doing it with other people. And, you know, Toby talked a little about peer-to-peer learning and things. I'm really interested in how this is going to play out because, you know, we have collapsed the world for ourselves and our kids into individualism and I'm a collectivist. So, you know, as a family of values, it's around collectivism. But but in that, it's not the kumbaya, you know, hug the tree thing. You do have to contribute. Like it is there is a a need for reciprocity and, and mutual contribution and respect. And that sort of helps to build that social infrastructure. And um, we've moved away from that, but I think that I, I at least I hear the signs that people are yearning for that and they're willing to actually take some baby steps back. And I know the work that Toby has done in his career around resilience is very much around that. It's like how do we help people remember what it's like to actually be self-sufficient and help your neighbour and um, create something that didn't exist before? How cool is that?
0: Do you think people are rem- is it, is it a Is it a memory? Like did... Did people that are uh, alive today, or potentially, you know, under under forty or fifty, was there ever a time of that helping, that neighbourly togetherness, uh, mutual respect and reciprocity? I, I I struggle to remember it personally. I feel like there's a system, especially here in Australia, but probably most of the sort of Anglo-Saxon world, in a way, the you know built on those systems anyway. What what have we done to to cause us to be so? Individualistic and and broken, almost as a culture in some regards. What have we done, you know, as a collective to make those systems the only system we've got, and and really have to try to fight or find a way through to get the humanness back into our existence?
2: Mm, I, I think I don't think it's straightforward. Um, you know, I grew up in the in regional Australia, but I was born in a city and. I love cities and I love the dynamism and, you know, the anonymity of cities because when you grow up in regional Australia, everybody knows everybody and it's a very different dynamic. And part of the reason that I went overseas so many times was to kind of get away from that, to just, just explore the world on my terms and not have to answer to anybody. But, you know, nothing's black and white. And, you know, back to the reciprocity, there is a reason in you know small towns why people are the way they are and you you can't separate that from the context but if you if you bring the view that people are fundamentally good even with a bit touch of cynicism they'll always step up and we've got countless stories and i think i think uh, if you just look at australia people in country areas are a bit closer to that communal living and we're seeing that being mobilised. I grew up in the the riverland of South Australia where everything was a cooperative, so everybody had a, had a piece of it. My brother-in-law was the accountant at Renmano Wines. And so that idea of cooperative endeavours, endeavors, it's not that far from us. But I think what we experienced in terms of rapid urbanisation was just part of a bigger global scam story. You know, Richard Florida's got a lot to answer for, I think, with that idea of the yes clusters are important but there's many different shapes and forms but we we sort of bought into a bigger story that all the opportunities were in cities and I've never believed that Mm -hmm. when I was a cadet reporter on the Murray Pioneer I would go and interview people who were groundbreaking in terms of agribusiness and their use of technology you know forerunners of sensors and water management techniques and so There's a lot of underlying assumptions that still need to be challenged around that. Um, But I think the pandemic showed us what's possible, at least in my part of um, the city, just the random acts of kindness that that we saw and we experienced from people and how communities mobilised. We can do it. We can do it, but it takes effort. But that's called a contribution economy, right, care economy, You know, this stuff that we're hearing out of the government around the care economy, which I love, but that is reciprocal. You know, that's got to be designed and co-designed and tested and refined. And in that scenario, accountability is a part of it. Responsibility is a part of it. And I think that's where we've dropped the ball a bit too. I've held so many... Positions in sporting clubs and stuff because people didn't want to put their hands up. And, you know, you turn around, you're the one there. You know, but volunteerism, the levels of volunteers in Australia are declining. Why is that? You know, so we've we've lost the thread a bit. But I don't think it's um, terminal. I think people just need to be brought back to see the the magic and the beauty to actually experience it.
0: Yeah, it's about the experience, isn't it? Because it's like that what's in it for me, you don't know, you know, unless there's a dollar sign in front which is what, you know, what's in it for me, it's the dollar. Well, it's actually the feeling you get when you're involved and, and mm. what you see when, what you feel when creation happens and the joy and and maybe people need to actually live that a little bit. We need to force that to be lived out so then people can actually um, seek it out rather than the, yeah, that transaction. It's
1: an interesting one because if you take a look at Australia – we see it all the time after disasters, after events. Um, so when you say we need to force it a little bit, when it is forced, it is there in abundance. Mm-hmm. I think there are also those structural challenges that make it hard to force people, without giving Richard Florida too hard a time, because I don't think he actually ever said that we should have actively have urban sprawl. I mean, you just take a look at the amount of time, and this is one of the reasons that, so many big businesses are finding it or in government organizations to get people back into the office. Because if you take a look at the average commuting time from our major urban centers, it's all very well to say, Oh, you should be doing more in the community. But it's like, well, I leave at six in the morning I get to the office. I get home at seven ish. If I'm lucky, I have dinner with the kids. So actually there is not, the structure does not allow me to be part of a community in the same way. So And in a sense, so, again, when we do have disasters, when everything stops, or to your point, Josie, earlier about, you know, some pretty interesting things coming out in the pandemic, actually people were, you know, it's amazing working from home, like, I miss my colleagues and so on, but for the first time I'm able to, obviously when they're in lockdown, they were not able to coach the local soccer team or whatever. But once it started to open up, you know, again, people actually had options and, it's an interesting I, I, and that, that concept of how we force things without forcing
2: mm. networks. Well, Maybe we need networks. Well, well, yes, and, you know, if you think about people trapped in organisations, because I use that term deliberately, the authorising environment is so important. And having spent such a lot of time chatting at length with people in senior roles... Sometimes we put our efforts in the wrong place and it's those conversations we should have around, you know what, so I used to say this to the CFOs, do you know how influential you are in the organisation? Do you know how you can actually uh, mobilise people in a different way by just changing some of the processes to free up people to do X, Y and Z? And there would be this sort of, oh, I could see almost see the thought bubbles coming out. Oh, yes, I have that power. I can do that. I've always been interested in this tension between sort of self-organisation and, and, you know, hierarchies and the, the messiness of um, adaptive behaviours. I don't think it's one or the other. Uh, I think it's a mindset. And, yes, there are structural issues and, y- yes, there are process issues, but what I learned from exposure to some really high-caliber executives is that stuff is surmountable That's doable and all you need to do to, it's a bit like the guy that, you know, the lone dancer with his shirt off and then, you know, he's got the followers. All you need to do is create a couple of tangible examples. Well, you know that, Toby, with, you know, as Chief Resilience Officer, you just had to create it and then they went, oh, okay, now I get it. I see it's possible, but it's back to that sense of possibility again.
1: You said a couple of things there, Josie, that... Are leading me towards this question. So one was around this sort of sense of possibility, making it palpable, and uh, talking about speaking with the CFOs and you know, helping them to understand the influence and, and power, that, or and the influence that they uh, could have. And you spoke about seeing the thought bubbles coming from their heads. So in all of this, you've worked uh, towards, as you say, this ongoing experiment that is the Catalyst Network, which is how you and I got to know each other, and you know, the amazing work that you are doing to continue to bring people together. So if you were to take a step back and look at all this, uh, and, and this sort of real, for want of a better phrase, superpower that you have around seeing connections, fostering connections, where for you is your moment of clarity?
2: Yes. I think probably around 2015, just looking back when I had my life piles, I'd had a couple of ventures that had started out, you know, full of aspiration and we're going to change the world. And, um, of course, they both um, exploded spectacularly. And my take out on that was... Okay, and and it was probably my lowest my lowest point in in life really, you know, aside from you know personal dramas, because I thought, what what the hell am I doing? Like I can't even make this work, and you always think it's about you. And then someone said to me, you know, why do you keep waiting for somebody else? It's you. You you have to you have to step forward. And I thought, oh, that's true. I've been waiting, I've been conditioned from my upbringing by the institutions of education and government that there is some other authority, some other expert who probably knows more than me. And it was that light bulb moment of, oh, I've got to stop doing that, that this is it, you know. I've lived around the world, I've garnered all this experience and some of it's a bit wacky but, you know, I I need to step into the fray And stop waiting for somebody else to do the heavy lifting, which I realised I'd been slightly apprehensive, you know, lacking the confidence of my upbringing to think, well, what do I know? The kid from the wrong side of the tracks. What what I realised living around the world was, I know a bit more than probably what I gave myself credit for, but it was more around we'll figure this out and what I can do is help mobilise and I don't have to have the answers. And that was like a big weight lifting off me, you know, didn't sort of revenue didn't start streaming from the sky at that point, but it was, oh, now I get it. Now I can just start being myself and actually starting to weigh in on some of these conversations Um, because, you know, we're all flesh and blood, we all have our foibles, Um, Whether you're the Prime Minister or, you know, the janitor, we all have an equal stake at this. But that conditioning, it just sort of fell away and I thought, well, game on.
0: Game on. Absolutely. Yeah, love it. Uh, Josie, that was wonderful and I think so many people can take away from your moment of clarity to to actually think about their own life and their own uh, potential as well that, you know, we really do have – the ability to be agents of change and agents of our own destiny in a way and that has been taken away from us so often that we are just pawns in a game that someone else is you know moving us around but there is you know an ability to take charge if if we have the courage to do so and trust in our in our mentors and our in our teams um and the people you know our support so thank you for sharing all of the lessons you've learned or some of the lessons you've learned along the way and um been an absolute pleasure thank you
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight. All of this reflecting and looking back. Gee, it might become a habit. (laughs) it's
1: been fabulous. Thank you so much, Josie.
2: Thank you, Toby. Thanks, Matt.
0: Thank you so much for listening to Moments of Clarity. If you are enjoying the podcast, there are a range of ways you can help us grow and continue to bring our conversations to you. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Moments of Clarity on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or the podcast player of your choice. This will ensure you never miss out on an episode. While you are there, you can leave us a review. It really does assist us in getting found by new listeners. However, the biggest way you can help us is to share the podcast with friends, family, colleagues and your social networks. We are hoping to build a community here at Moments of Clarity and want you, loyal listener, to help us build it. We would absolutely love to hear from you and always take the time to reply to your messages. You can get in contact with us on Instagram at Moments of Clarity Podcast via our website, moc-pod.com or email hello at moc-pod.com. Thanks again for listening to Moments of Clarity. See you next time.